Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. We are coming close to the end of the book of Acts. That's what we're studying together. We're studying it in the spring. We're finishing up now here in the early fall. I wonder who is a faithful witness of Christ that you look up to and that you seek to imitate? Maybe it's someone you know, someone who discipled you perhaps, a pastor, a parent. Maybe it was a friend who shared the gospel with you. Maybe it's someone that you've read about, someone who's actually not alive right now, but you have read a biography of someone who was a faithful witness of Christ in history. And you think, I want to be like that. You know, for the author of Acts, who is Luke, I'm confident that that faithful witness that Luke looked up to was the Apostle Paul. He traveled with Paul. Most of the book of Acts is about Paul's life after having met Christ and sharing the gospel throughout the world. He might have even been led to Christ by Paul. And he witnessed Paul in some of the most dramatic situations where witnessing to Christ could have been easily avoided. But Paul was bold. Paul was wise. And Paul was always ready to persuade people that Christ is the king. Christ is the king and his death and resurrection means good news for sinners. In chapters 25 and 26, which is what we're looking at today, we are coming to perhaps the most dramatic telling of Paul being a faithful and bold witness. It's another courtroom scene. We've been seeing Paul in courtroom scenes throughout chapters 21 through up through our chapters 25 and 26 now. And I hope as we look at chapters 25 and 26 that you come away seeing Paul in this passage and wanting to be like him. We can. We can be like Paul by God's grace. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 25. We're looking at the entire chapter 25 and 26. It's a big chunk of scripture, a big text that we're going through. And I'm going to read to you not all of that text, but we're going to start. Uh, I'm going to start in my reading at verse 23 in chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 23. You can find that at the bottom, in the bottom paragraph on page 8 in your bulletin, if you don't have a Bible with you, or you'd like to follow in the bulletin. Chapter 25, verse 23, and we'll read all the way through the end of 26. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great 
saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death nor imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have revealed your word to us. You revealed yourself to Paul and to every person who comes to faith in you, you reveal yourself. You have turned us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to your very power, your saving power. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When we look at this passage, I think we can learn two major lessons here. That a Christian must be wise when you're opposed. And a Christian must be a witness ready to persuade. A Christian must be wise when opposed. And a Christian must be a witness ready to persuade. First, be wise when you're opposed. And we see that in chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 to see this lesson for us. Most of chapter 25 really sets the stage for Paul's dramatic testimony before King Agrippa in chapter 26. It's prelude in many ways. The Jews had failed in their plot to kill Paul as he was held in jail in Jerusalem. And they failed to make a convincing case against Paul in front of Fest, Portius Festus's previous governor named Felix, who was located in Caesarea. The Jews couldn't prove anything that they were charging Paul with. But Felix, Portius Festus's predecessor, kept Paul in prison for two whole years, bringing him out only occasionally for he, he and his wife to interview and talk to. Of course, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe to get out of prison. But Paul never did. Paul was waiting on the work of the Lord. Instead, Paul offered them the gospel in those interviews, time after time after time. Now, a man named Governor Festus 
has taken Felix's place. And he has to decide what to do with Paul because he's a prisoner there in Caesarea. And in verses 1 through 5, Festus visits the Jewish leaders first in Jerusalem where they try to convince him to send Paul back to Jerusalem because, of course, they still want to kill Paul. They're setting out to assassinate him still. But Festus wants them to come back to Caesarea with him and bring their charges against Paul in his presence. Now, make no mistake, Festus wants to do a favor to the Jews. So he's looking to have it both ways, to do justice, which Paul deserves, and to do a favor for the Jews as well. Difficult to pull off. In verses 6 through 12 then in chapter 25, they describe Paul once again in front of Festus, arguing his case for the first time. And what happens at that hearing is important for what will happen to Paul next and really for the rest of the book of Acts. Of course, the Jews bring their charges against him once again, and Paul once again demonstrates that they can't prove any of it. There's no evidence. And the summary of Paul's defense is in verse 8. We've heard it before in the prior chapters. Look there at verse 8 with me. He argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. This is Paul's defense. Now when Paul references, references Caesar, he means that he's not violated any of the Roman laws. But the Jews had asked Festus for that favor, right? And He's, they said, send Paul to Jerusalem for us. Festus could have ordered him to go, but in the providence of God, he merely asks Paul in this hearing in his presence if Paul wants to be tried in Jerusalem. Now, Paul knows that the Jews want to kill him. Paul's not afraid of death. He even tells that to Festus. He's willing to be executed if he's done something wrong that deserves execution. But Paul will never be treated fairly in Jerusalem. And more than that, he's a Roman citizen. He should be tried according to Roman law. And that's the point he's making to Festus. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. And what he means by that is, I'm a Roman citizen. I demand that Caesar hear my case. Festus then consults with his advisors. And at the end of verse 12 is his conclusion. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And we're not told directly by the author Luke that Paul shared the gospel in this situation. He's not quoted here. Luke's summary in verses 8 through 11 is mainly about Paul's defense and his appeal to Caesar. But down in verse 19, when Festus is describing Paul's case to King Agrippa, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, he mentions that the dispute that the Jews had with Paul was, quote, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted was alive. The gospel of the risen Lord Jesus must have been something that Paul had spoken about in Festus's presence, even for Festus to know that much, to tell Agrippa. Then in verses 13 through 22, they describe the arrival of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. 
King Agrippa's full title was Herod Agrippa II. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I, who blasphemed God and died back in Acts chapter 12. You can go back and read about that. And he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who had ordered the murder of all the boy infants in Bethlehem when the announcement of Christ's birth went out. These final verses in this section describe a private conversation between Festus and Agrippa, where Festus is recounting Paul's case. Of course, he's recounting it uh, and casts himself in a very favorable light. And these verses set the stage for Paul's dramatic defense before Agrippa in chapter 26. And they explain how Agrippa would have been already briefed on an overview of Paul's case beforehand. Now what we have to remember in the background of chapter 25 of Paul's appearance before Festus is God's plans for Paul, which he's already spoken to Paul, literally revealed it to Paul in words back in Chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord had told Paul through Ananias in Damascus that Paul would be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is about to be before a king. And even more recently for Paul, two years before this time, when Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, the Lord appeared to him in the night while he was in jail in Jerusalem and said, literally, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul knew that he was going to get to Rome. God had promised it. Now, I told you that I think the emphasis here in this chapter 25 is Paul's wise choice in the face of opposition. What does it take for us to be wise when opposed or simply under pressure? One part of wisdom is simply to think carefully about what the options are that we have available to us in any particular situation. Paul reasoned before Felix and before Festus that the Jews couldn't prove their accusations against him And that he shouldn't be transferred to Jerusalem to stand trial. It didn't make sense. He knew that they had previously planned to assassinate him in Jerusalem. And they were probably still seeking to do that. And so he chose to appeal to Caesar. It was his right as a Roman citizen. It was an option that was available to him. And so he took it. Now when you and I are opposed because of the gospel... In order to make wise choices, we need to think clearly about our options. Brothers and sisters, it is not unspiritual to use the common sense that God has given us and to survey the options in front of you. If God has provided a way out of a difficult situation, it's not wrong to prayerfully take that option. A second important aspect in making wise choices when opposed is to trust God's plans for us. So God had directly revealed to Paul that he would eventually get to Rome. Now, for most of us, the Lord hasn't revealed his plans for us in such specific, literal, 
ways as he had for Paul. And yet the scriptures tell us much about God's plans for us in general, don't they? His will always involves our sanctification. In other words, God's will for us is that we be growing more holy, fighting sin until he returns. There's no doubt about that. God's will for us and for every Christian is to be a witness for him. We're all called to be witnesses. God's will for us is to be prepared for suffering and self-denial as we follow Christ. God's will for us is to live lives of love for him and for those around us. All these things we know are God's will for us because we know God's word. And God is speaking to us through his word. All of these plans we know by being people who are saturating our minds with the scriptures. Are you trusting God's plans for you as revealed in scripture? Are you spending time every single day reading God's word? Little by little, bit by bit, over the course of years, reading books that you've already read before so that you can understand them more and more because God reveals his word to us over time often. You and I need to be people of his word, to know his will for us. Common sense and God's biblically revealed plans for us enable us to make wise choices when we're opposed. Now, despite being unjustly imprisoned for over two years, when that crucial moment before Festus came here in chapter 25, Paul made a wise choice because he used the common sense that God had given him and he trusted in God's plan as he had revealed it to him. Both things were at play in his wise choice. We can do the same. We can be wise when we're opposed. Now all of chapter 5 sets up the opportunity for Paul to speak directly to King Agrippa. And it was in his presence that Paul spoke persuasively about the gospel. That's the lesson for us from chapter 25, verse 23, all the way to the end of 26. Be a witness ready to persuade. Be a witness ready to persuade. The Rhodian dynasty of Jewish kings were thoroughly corrupt. One Bible scholar summarizes the Heronian dynasty this way. Herod the Great had tried to destroy the infant Jesus. His son Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, beheaded John the Baptist. His grandson Agrippa I killed the apostle James with the sword. Now that's not a great heritage. And here... Paul now stands before another Herod. Just like his Lord and Savior, Jesus, had stood before Herod the first. In that dramatic encounter, Jesus had said nothing when questioned by Herod Agrippa the first. You can read about it in Luke's gospel. But Paul is willing to speak because Christ had commissioned him to be his witness before kings. And now is his God-appointed time to testify, and he's ready. Not just to defend himself, but even to persuade 
King Agrippa to trust in Christ. The last paragraph in chapter 25 describes this impressive scene that Paul is brought into to testify. There's Governor uh, Festus, all of the Roman military tribunes, the leading men of Caesarea are all there in the room. And then King Agrippa and his sister Bernice entered with great ceremony. There must have been music. There must have been pageantry. Everyone must have been in their best and most formal attire. And then the prisoner Paul is brought in. What a contrast. Paul was supposedly unimpressive in his appearance. And he's been in prison for two years. I'm sure he didn't have on his best clothes. All the important looking people were in that room and simple, humble Paul, the one that God would have designated as the most important person in the room. There they were all together. Now, after a brief introduction to the king, Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak. And what follows from Paul's mouth has been called by some theologians his apologia pro vida sua, which in Latin means a defense of one's life. This is Paul's defense of his life. He begins by telling Agrippa about his upbringing as a Pharisee, the strictest sect of the Jews. In verses 6 through 8, he says that he's on trial because of a hope that he had when he was living as a Pharisee and that he still has his hope, which he mentions three times in those verses 6 through 8. That hope is a hope in the resurrection of the dead. He says in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Even before Paul was a Christian, he had a hope in the resurrection because the Pharisees read the scriptures at least correctly in that respect. There would be a resurrection of the dead. Then in verses 9 through 11, he describes his fanatical persecution of Christians. He says he locked up many saints. He cast his vote against them when they were put to death. He punished them, trying to make them blaspheme. And he persecuted them, even chasing them to foreign cities. And of course, by mentioning the foreign cities, he sets up his transition to tell about his trip to Damascus. We've read about Paul's conversion now in the book of Acts three times. And there are slight differences in how the story is told each time. One thing that we can learn from this is that true stories told by different people or perhaps in different situations result in stories that oftentimes have some differences between them. That's true of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. I don't know if you've compared those four gospels before. If you have, it's probably occurred to you that they're arranged in different chronology. That sometimes the teaching of Jesus is told with slightly different wording or perhaps one of the miracles of Jesus is told in a different way. But the differences don't mean that there are mistakes or errors present. 
If four of us, of course, witnessed something notable happening and we all recounted it separately, there would be differences in our stories based on our perspective or perhaps based on who we were relating the story to and what we wanted to emphasize. It makes perfect sense that there are differences in the different accounts. And the same is true here. And so when you see the differences between the gospel accounts or the differences here in these accounts of Paul's conversion, start by asking the question not, is this really true? But what did this gospel author want to emphasize by telling the story in this way? One feature that is unique to Paul's telling of his story here is his emphasis on his commissioning as an apostle. How the Lord appointed him to be a witness. Look at verses 16 through 18. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you were saved, you also were appointed as a servant and a witness. Those identities aren't unique to Paul. They are true of everyone who calls on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Servants do the bidding of their master. Do you think of yourself as Christ's servant? Are his purposes and his goals your purpose and goals for your life? Day in and day out? Week in and week out? It might help you internalize that identity as a servant to tell the Lord Jesus in prayer, Lord, today I am your servant. Lead me so that I live as you want me to live. Say it out loud to yourself even. Now witnesses tell what they've seen and experienced. Have you actively prayed and looked for opportunities to tell others about the Lord Jesus and about his gospel? Are you comfortable explaining the gospel? You know, very few people are comfortable explaining the gospel without simply stumbling through it as best you can with some regularity. Trying to tell what you know about the gospel message. If you're a member of Covenant Hope Church, you've done it at least one time. <laughs> you did it in the membership interview. When you sat with an elder and they asked you to explain the gospel in one or two minutes. Each one of you did. You explained the gospel. You included the most important parts. And that, friends, is all it takes to share the gospel with someone else. To repeat that very thing. To tell others, to be a witness. If you did it then, you can do it again and again and again. And you can get better at it. You honor Christ when you live as a servant and as a witness to Christ Jesus, just like Paul. Now, if we read on in these verses through verse 18, we can start there at 18 or at the end of 17. 
the Lord is telling him to whom I am sending you. And then in 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. If you're not a Christian, one thing that might be surprising is that the Bible teaches that people are living under one of two powers in their life. The power of Satan or the power of God. Living in spiritual darkness or living in spiritual light. All people, including us, those of us who call ourselves Christians, were living under the power of Satan before we repented and believed in Christ. The world, of course, generally believes that all people are basically good. They just occasionally do bad things. They just need to be better. But the Bible teaches that though we were created in the image of God, created with great dignity, we all were serving Satan's purposes in the world from our birth. We may have done some good deeds. We, we may have even been religious. We may have even attended church regularly. But before we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ, we were not serving Christ the King and the Savior. We were serving Satan. And no one is able to please the Lord Jesus until they hear the gospel and until God works in their hearts to give them faith in his son, until he forgives their sins. Only then did we begin living in the power of God, living in the light, as Paul says here. The good news of the gospel is that God is working out a rescue plan for people trapped under the rule of Satan. And he's made it possible most directly through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's his solution to our subjugation under Satan. Paul references that in verses 22 and 23 as he drives home his testimony to King Agrippa, what the result was of his conversion and commissioning as a sent witness. Look there in verses 22 and 23. He says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying before both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And here it is, the heart of the gospel, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There it is, the heart of the gospel, the way that God has solved our sin problem. In Christ's suffering and his death on the cross, God was pouring out his wrath and punishment on Christ instead of us. Christ didn't deserve it. We deserved all of it. He willingly became our substitute, the sacrifice on our behalf. But he didn't stay in the grave. No, God the Father raised Christ from the dead. And Christ's death, therefore, conquered Satan. 
And that enabled the forgiveness of our sins because the debt had been paid. And that freed us to live as God's servants and witnesses when we repented and trusted in him. Oh, that, brothers and sisters, that is the message of the gospel that Paul was confidently proclaiming to Agrippa. And that's the message of the gospel that we proclaim today. There's nothing different that we proclaim. You can go from death to life. You can go from darkness to light, excuse me. You can go from death to life. From the power of Satan to the power of God. By repenting and believing in Christ. That is the way. Oh, I urge you, do that even today. Now, the last thing that Paul says is a benefit back in verse 18 that came from this calling that he has from God is that those who receive the forgiveness of sins receive then a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, what does that mean? He's saying that those who become Christians become members of a community. They become members of a people, the people of God. And the people of God were and are identified by their membership in the church. Not only the church universal, in other words, the church that includes all people of faith through all, out, all time and places, but also and specifically, they're identified by membership in the local church. You see, if you've put your trust and faith in Christ and you have said to those around you, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, the Bible also tells you that not only should you do that, but that you should let a local church affirm your profession of faith. That you should let a church observe your life and listen to your testimony of what the gospel is so that we can say, yes, he's a believer in Jesus. Or yes, she's a person of true faith. That's the message of the entire scriptures. When you become a Christian, it's appropriate to become a member of a local church. And in that way, identify yourself in, with a place among the people of God. Next weekend, we're going to be having a membership class. Again, if you are not a member of the church and you profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you, come to the membership class and learn what it means to be a member of Covenant Hope Church. In the course of becoming a member, you'll have an opportunity to tell us that you are a follower of Jesus. You'll have an opportunity to share a brief survey or summary of the gospel message with us. And you'll tell us about how your life has changed because of Jesus. Let us affirm your profession of faith, just like the scriptures tell us. Now, Paul wasn't just defending himself before Agrippa, he was being a faithful witness. And Festus, along with probably everyone there in the room, must have been shocked to hear the prisoner Paul boldly proclaiming Christ to Agrippa, someone who could have said, execute him, just like that. 
In fact, Festus interrupts Paul in verse 24, and he tells him that he's out of his mind. He says it twice. You're out of your mind. Your great learning has made you go out of your mind. If you faithfully share the gospel with people, there will be people who think you are crazy. They will think you've been brainwashed. You've thrown your brains away in favor of fairy tales and fiction. Maybe you think that about me. Especially since I told you that if you don't know Christ, you're under the power of Satan. But I challenge you, read the scriptures. See what they say. It's the truth. Brothers and sisters, you can expect the world to think you are an irrational fool for believing in Christ and the scriptures, but you're not. Paul tells Festus in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. The Christian faith is both true and rational. There's great evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness as a document. Jesus of Nazareth is the most compelling figure in all of history. And you know what? In all my years of conversations with people of all faiths and even no faith, I've found that the Christian faith is the best explanation of why the world is like it is. Of why there's evil in the world, of why there's even a world in the first place. Perhaps most of all, the Christian faith explains why I was the way I was before I understood the gospel at the age of 16. And why I am now who I am since I've walked with Christ for 41 years. The Christian faith makes sense. Christian, your faith in Christ makes sense. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Don't doubt it for a minute, no matter who tells you that. And with that bold rebuttal to Festus, Paul turned to King Agrippa, even more bold, and he made a personal appeal for him to trust in Christ. Look again with me at this amazing exchange between Paul and Agrippa. It's in verses 27 through 29 in chapter 26. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. John Stott puts it like this. Paul wanted everybody a Christian, but nobody a prisoner. To evangelize is to share the message of salvation with the aim to persuade. We want to persuade people. We make no bones about that. True witnesses and servants of Christ want to persuade people to believe in Christ. We don't want to manipulate. We don't want to force it upon anyone. We know that that's not how people become Christians. They need to make a decision. But we long for those around us to believe in Christ and to become what we are, Christians, Servants of God the Father, through faith in the Son, Jesus, filled with the Spirit 
forgiven sinners. Don't be afraid to ask people, what do you believe and why do you believe it? What a great conversation starter. Jesus sought to persuade. Paul sought to persuade. And so should we if we truly love Christ and we truly love people. John Stott again gets to the heart of it, writing, Paul wanted the king's salvation, not his favor. There's only two more chapters left in the book of Acts. They describe Paul's dangerous journey to Rome and how he witnessed to the Jews in that great city. Of course, God's plans for Paul came true, didn't they? They always do. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus told the apostles that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And since chapter 13, really perhaps back to chapter 9 when Paul was converted, Paul has been Luke's primary model of a witness to Jesus Christ. In many ways, this encounter with Agrippa is the climax of Paul's life as, account, as in the account here in Acts and perhaps his greatest example of being a servant, a servant and a witness to Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, we can learn from Paul. We can imitate Paul. We can be wise when we're faced with opposition and we can be a witness ready to persuade. By God's grace, we can. Let's pray.